So I'm here with Peter Luongo. Peter Luongo has a very has a very big variety of his career path. He's been in he's he's had some jobs in the government. He, he's had some in uh, different schools as a principal, and now he's a ukulele teacher. So I just love to ask him about what what he thinks about the modern education system, how he got to his positions, and what that variety of different careers that you have went to over the years, how that helped you in your uh, life. So thank you very much for joining me. Uh, could you talk about some of the key steps or decisions that led you to start teaching ukulele and why did you pick ukulele? Okay, so let's let me go back a little bit. So when I was really young, just a little boy, um, we lived not far from where I live now very close to what's called the Pacific National Exhibition. Mm -hmm. And um, the, <laughs> the fair, because it's a big event that happens every year, mm -hmm. allowed an opportunity for kids in the neighborhood to go into business. Okay. So we would park cars, provide parking spaces for cars, and we'd make some money and we'd go buy candy. So it was that sort of opportunity to, to do something uh, that would generate revenue that would allow us as kids to see the benefit of you do a job, you get a result, and you can get some enjoyment, i.e. sugar. Now, when I continued on, uh, my father and mother got me started in music. And so I started taking uh, lessons on the accordion. It was a cultural instrument. My Italian family wanted very much to be able to have music of their country in the home. Well, that resulted in my taking my accordion and playing professionally when I was 13, 14 years old in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I would go every Friday and Saturday night. My brother played the drums eventually. I played the accordion and we would perform. And that generated revenue. That revenue allowed me to pay for all my schooling, allowed me to buy my first vehicle. My brother and I actually bought our first piece of property with money that we made from playing in a band. Oh, wow. Now I'm 18 years old and you're asking the question, how did you get to playing teaching ukulele? At age 18, I went to university. As a university student, I chose to go into education. And part of my schooling for education was that I was supposed to learn instruments that I could teach to kids. So we had to learn to play the recorder, mm -hmm. we had to learn to play the ukulele, and I was also taught to play band instruments. With the idea being that I would take all of that knowledge, and then as I became a teacher, I would teach kids. Okay, so go fast forward four years. I made a decision to go into education as an elementary school teacher, and I started teaching ukulele. Now, within a very short time, uh, for example, I went right back and started working on my master's degree in ed educational administration. I was teaching classroom and music and learning to become a school principal. My master's degree gave me access to apply for school administrator position. Within three years, I was no longer a school teacher. I was now an administrator, but I always wanted to stay teaching in the classroom so that I would always stay current in my practice. So what I chose to do was to continue to teach music. I taught music 
using the ukulele. The kids that I taught got to be very good. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, I was able to take them to other locations to teach them, sorry, to allow them to perform. And eventually, we got invited to perform in Hawaii. Oh, wow. So after five years of being an educator, teaching music, five years later, I'm in Waikiki with kids playing the ukulele. So what led to my teaching ukulele was a music background that I got as a kid, the opportunity to perform, the desire to have other children get that same opportunity, and then them be successful, which then led to a whole different thing. I started treating the ukulele, the ukulele teaching, as a bit of a business. You remember when I was a little kid, parking cars, right. generating revenue. Now I was teaching and being a school principal, vice principal, but I also had the chance to take this ability to teach the ukulele and to have children be able to perform at a high level. That resulted in my getting a reputation around the world as someone who could do this. So all of this contributed to why I taught. I loved giving kids music. I loved giving them a chance to make music, but I was also getting them to experience success and the ability to generate revenue that allowed them to travel to Hawaii where they went every year and didn't pay for it. Hmm. So they stayed in a very fancy hotel right on the beach in exchange for playing at the hotel. Oh. Right? So what's not to like about that? Right. So if I go fast forward 35 years, I then retired from teaching. And I had a group that was world famous. And in fact, they made a movie about it. And, and so I had a pretty good reputation. Well, at that point, I was given a chance to go in and uh, act as a vice president of a national company. And that person that hired me told me, the reason I'm hiring you isn't because you have expertise in the area of my company. It's because I've watched what you've done with the ukulele group. And I've seen the way that you've worked with young people. And I believe that I can use that talent to help in leading my business. So for the next three years, we agreed to a short-term role in his company. For the next three years, I helped structure his sales team, helped develop a culture of success amongst his sales team, helped develop uh, a structure that would allow for the person taking over after me to be able to continue that program of success in the sales marketing area of his company. I then left and returned to teaching ukulele. And now for the last 10 years, almost 10 years now, it's been seven, eight years, I've been leading uh, workshops and teaching across the US, in Europe, in Canada, with adults as well as children. So I'm, I'm now retired, but my current role is as a private business person. My business is teaching other adults to play the ukulele and to perform. So last year in July, I took a group of 20 adults and we performed at the same hotel resort as the students used to perform at. So that, Matthew, that's a long-winded way around saying that's how I got into ukulele teaching. It was never really about ukulele. It was about taking a skill and a talent that I had and a motivation that I had 
and running with it. <laughs> wow. Well, that kind of took the entire journey around and it helped you. You got knowledge at the very beginning through experience and that brought you to where you are now. Yep. Um, how has tra transitioning from a principal to a ukulele teacher influenced your teaching philosophy? Well, I think it, it really, um, any, any person that is a professional or considers them a professional is always growing. You never mm -hmm. stop evolving right. as a learner. So really, uh, my role as an educator in the first place as a, a school administrator and or teacher influenced the way that I taught ukulele. But to be blunt with you, the two are completely related. It, when I would learn something about teaching from my experience with the ukulele, I would then bring that experience back to my school. Because organically, when we are desiring to be better at our chosen profession, we're constantly looking for ways to be better at our craft. That's going to impact all we do. And then the side benefit was that the whole time I was doing it, because it was being run as a business, I was also learning about sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, being an effective teacher is about sales and marketing. Matthew, your best teacher is going to sell you on learning that subject. Right. They understand that I can't just give you stuff to learn. I've got to sell you on the idea of learning it. Mm -hmm. That realization came because of ukulele. If I wanted to have young people stick with playing this instrument, I had kids playing from the time they were 11, but they stayed till they were in their early 20s. How do you do that? Well, you have to sell them on the benefit to them. So if you're, if you're a math teacher, is smart, your math teacher is going to take your desire to learn math and utilize it so that you can see the practical application of all that you're learning in class to your life so that you're motivated to learn it because you can see a benefit for you. If they try and teach it to you as stuff, I'm just teaching you stuff, Right. pretty soon you're going to get bored with that and go, why am I doing this? So it wasn't about me teaching ukulele. When I was teaching them to play this instrument, what I was really saying to them was, I'm going to teach you how to be a leader. I'm going to teach you how to take your skill and affect the way people view you. I'm going to teach you how you can benefit from generating revenue from playing to get the reward of your generation of revenue, a trip to Hawaii. So it was a constant feeding back and forth between what I did with ukulele and what I did in the school. If I learned a new technique or strategy for teaching, I tried it with the ukulele kids. If I, if I did something with the ukulele kids and realized, man, that really works, then I would bring it back to my teachers in the school and say, try this. So that it was never about one or the other. It was always about the collective effort on my part to become a master teacher, a master educator, and hone that profession to be the best I could be. Matthew, when I worked with the sales team at the national company, it was the same strategy. I had mm -hmm. to convince and motivate these people with whom I was working that there was a benefit to them to do things the right way. Now, they saw the benefit in money. They got a greater commission. Right. But I also tried to show them the benefit of growing the company. 
Growing the company gave them greater opportunities to make greater commissions. So the strategies were never in isolation, just about money or just about playing a ukulele or just about learning math. The strategy was always about how can I motivate you to see the benefit to you to learn, to become more um, capable and to be able to share that talent so it benefits you and the greater community. I find that newer teachers at schools, uh, like what you said, they, 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 they try to interest you in the topic, right? Uh, that wouldn't, for, for the senior role in uh, senior teachers who've been at the school for a, a while and they're, and they're high on the seniority list, it doesn't really give them an incentive to teach the kids and intrigue them in their subject than it would to a newer teacher. How do you think, is there a work, a way around this or well, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, listen, teachers don't teach stuff. You know what teachers teach? Kids. So if, if it doesn't matter how old you are, if your focus is the subject you teach, you've missed the point. I don't teach math. I teach math to students, to kids. In my case, I, I teach ukulele. To who? Now to kids and to adults. So... I have to focus on the person I'm teaching, not on the subject. The subject will look after itself. You're more senior teachers, those teachers that have got tenure, have experience. They have the greatest opportunity in the world because they have all that experience to build on. They have all that experience to refer to. And if they can do that and they care about honing their craft as educators and put their focus on the kids sitting in front of them, then they'll realize I can get kids excited about learning what I am passionate about if I focus on selling the kids on the benefits of that material. I'm not teaching stuff, I'm teaching kids. I want those kids to know more about the stuff that I know about. So right. how do you keep a 21-year-old interested in playing the ukulele? Because it isn't about ukulele you know what, you're going to make some great music. I'm going to help you make some great music. You're going to take that great music and you're going to share it with these people out here. You know why? Because I know you want to share music making with other people. I'm going to give you the chance to do that. Guess what happens? I'll stay with that. I'm now 19 years old. I, I could, I could move on, but I want to stay here. I want to be involved in still making music still sharing that music, still traveling to Japan or to Hawaii or to Nova Scotia, wherever it is that I'm going to go, I'm still getting an experience. So what am I doing? I'm inspiring kids to continue to stay involved in music making. Why? Because it's a ukulele? No, but because they're getting experiences that are real life experiences, mm -hmm. sharing something they love. What do they love? Making music. And they're doing it with a group of people they care about, their classmates. It's a win-win-win. They get to spend time with people they care about, doing something they love to do, while they learn about different places in the world and, and, and be able to share their talents with other people. I, I had folks stay till they were ready to move on to careers. So even when they were going to university, they were saying, look, I wanna stay, I wanna keep doing this. It's a lot of fun, I'm still learning, I wanna do it. And the result is, that you build a program around teaching. Teaching is not about what age I'm at. 
it's about my taking my material that I care about and helping young people to, to, to develop that same passion for it that I do. Mm -hmm. Schools now seem much more lenient on the subjects they teach and how they teach them. Mm. Do you think this is beneficial for students or do you think there should be a different approach to uh, teaching students? I know, I, know, I know you teach students differently, but here I'm mainly referring to schools yeah. and teachers in schools. That so I, I, I'm a huge advocate of setting the highest standard possible. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believe very firmly that by setting a high standard, you benefit all children. All children. Some people would say, well, if you set the standard too high, people can't achieve it. But I don't believe that that's the goal. Our, our goal is to set the standard high so that we get the students to achieve to the highest possible standard for them. Right. If I take a student who struggles with learning and there are students who have difficulty with processing information and with anxiety and or just with being able to learn in the way that schools work. I think we can adapt our system to consider their learning styles and their, their needs, but I don't think we should ever lower the standard. The standard should always be you, need, you want to aspire to master a level of understanding in a subject area. So I'm gonna go back to my level that I taught elementary. Every child, should have the ability to read and write, to do mathematics, arithmetic, the ability to understand, appreciate, and I would hope make music, the ability to understand, appreciate physical activity and how important it is in our lives to be active and healthy. Those are our building blocks for all people. When we have them in elementary school, we should be setting those foundational building blocks as high a standard as we possibly can. So my accepting that a child can't read, can't write, can't do arithmetic at a level that is consistent with their peers, that's a minimum standard. And we should not be compromising it at all because to compromise it affects society. So, you know, you're asking me how I feel about a level of leniency. I, I'm, as a citizen, I'm offended by it. And mm -hmm. I think we, as educators, need to find every, every opportunity we can to have every student reach their greatest potential. In fact, we're obligated to do it because there's something in our system called an individual educational program, an IEP. Every teacher has a mandate for every student to be looking at what their individual needs are and to do their best to address every individual student's needs within the concept of a classroom. That's our mandate. Now, Matthew, let's be frank. The biggest issue isn't that I can't teach children to learn, it's that I can't teach a group of children when they're not attending to the learning. Does that make nice. sense? Yeah. So if I've got a class of 20 students, but they're not paying attention, they're not gonna learn. So I think there's a bigger piece to this that needs to be dealt with. Who are, the, who are the clients? Who are the students sitting in front of the teacher? And what are they getting as support from home, 
and from the education system that allows them to teach those students so that those students reach their potential. So if a student shows up and they're not fed in the morning, what obligation do we have? Well, do we, are we as a school system supposed to teach them? Or sorry, feed them? Or is that an obligation of home? Are we as a society holding the expectation at home that you feed that child? And if not, then it falls back to the school. If the child shows up and can't attend, can't listen during class because they have an inability to attend, what are we doing about that? Who's obligated to make sure that that child can show up in the morning ready to learn? That's not being adequately addressed, in my view. Mm-hmm. So you've asked the question, and it's right. Should we be lenient about students learning? No. But we've also got to be given a half-decent chance to expect them to achieve at their level. And if the student is not showing up ready to learn or able to learn, then we need to cooperatively work together with home, school, administration, government, society, to ensure that every student showing up shows up in the morning ready to learn, able to learn, and that the teacher is empowered to educate to their highest standard. I'm not sure that we're there yet. And that's the biggest change that I've seen in 40 years since I started as an educator to today, where I still teach, but not officially in a school. That's the biggest change. The kids, when they show up to us, aren't coming like they were 40 years ago. I remember, as a child, you know, your dad was probably told the same thing. If you get in trouble at school, when you get home, you're going to get it twice as bad. Yeah. Right? That's no longer it. Now, I'm sending you to school. Be done with you. You go to school. I'm not saying every family does that. Right. Right. Right? But I'm saying too many go with, without appreciation for learning. If I can tell you a quick story. I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. My father was an immigrant Italian, could not read English until later in his life, right? Because he came, right. he worked as a laborer, he was, he was fluent in Italian, had to learn to speak English. When I was seven, I would get a spelling list, right? Uh-huh. You know what my dad would do? He would sit at the dinner table and he would read that list of words to me. In some cases, he had a tough time pronouncing them. These were written in English and he would test me to spell them. He could barely read them, but he was testing me to spell them. What's the message I got? He values my learning. He values me learning. So as a seven-year-old, I already knew education is important. My dad values it, even though he can't speak the language. He's right. testing, and he's saying, you're gonna do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you. The best music students I ever had were the music students whose parents said, it matters to me that my child come to you and learn to, to make music. Those students became the most proficient musicians. The most difficult students I ever had were the ones where parents weren't invested because they gave the message to the I child, see. I don't care, it doesn't matter to me, you're not my priority, your learning is not a priority for me. I didn't finish school, I don't care if you do or not. Well, that's not fair to the teacher. Right? Yeah. So if I've got a group of students in front of me and and they're arriving in the morning going, my parents don't care if I learn or not. 
Now the teacher's job's way more difficult. I not only have to overcome you being here when you'd rather be sleeping, you're 14 years old, you'd rather sleep, I now have to overcome as well a mindset that you come walking in the door that this isn't important to you. So you asked a good question, it's very complex. But at the end of the day, I think it's one that needs to be addressed and we need to get kids back to a place where they value learning for the sake of our future of our own society. You recent, uh, you've briefly spoken about your government job. Could you just explain a bit more about that and what was your role in the government? Well, uh, first and foremost, my role as a teacher was a government job. Uh, oh, as yeah. Soon as, okay. as soon as the government uh, <laughs> hires you to do a job, you're now working for the government. Okay. So I was a public servant as a, a member of the education system. When I uh, retired, I was asked by government to sit on um, uh, a board, uh, a board of a group, uh, a college of opticians. And so as, as a government appointee, uh, I was there, it was, it, I mean, I got paid a stipend, but that's really not why you do that. The government comes to you and says, we believe you have a skill set, we believe you have knowledge, we believe you have the ability to help um, advance this regulatory group, in the case of opticians, regulating uh, opticianary practice, which is a branch of healthcare. We believe you have the ability to support that, that regulatory group. We'd like you to apply your skills to doing that. So yeah, I spent um, eight years, seven, eight years working with that group and was very pleased to be able to share the skills that I had learned both in private practice and in my other government job uh, to try and advance uh, the college and its role as a regulatory group. Now, if you don't mind, we'll go back to your childhood again. Yeah, yeah. You said you went to university. What courses did you take in university that helped you? Yeah, I, I uh, had actually gone to the University of British Columbia with the intention of becoming a lawyer. And uh, I was very interested in the law and in politics, actually, and the two are related. Um, and so uh, I, I made a conscious decision to go into education um, because I felt that if law school didn't work out, I had a backup plan. I see. Um, so I went through four years of taking education courses, and that led to my going into schools and working with children. And I pretty quickly developed uh, um, a real appreciation for that role. In fact, I quite enjoyed it. And uh, as I was ready to graduate, uh, several school districts approached me and asked me if I would go work for them. At the same time, I was applying to law school and actually had been offered a position at uh, UVic, which I didn't take. I decided instead to go into education and to become a school um, a school teacher and a school administrator is my career. So the courses I took were everything from psychology and psychology of learning, psychology of youth, psychology of adults, to um, literally courses about how to teach and how to expand um, the minds of the learner, uh, which I, th I found very, very interesting. I, I really quite enjoyed them. And then, of course, I took some music courses as well because that was always a passion for me. Right. Yeah. 
you mentioned that you had uh, you're very interested in law and um, politics. Politics. Yeah. Uh, what drove you to those interests? Uh, you know, I think the minute that we start to question, and this is something that I think schools need to do more of, mm -hmm. to openly question without prejudice. So, I shouldn't give my students a loaded question that leads them to an answer. It should be an open-ended question that, it, that implies I need to go and inquire and ask more questions. The minute that we look at society, i.e. the way we are governed, with an open mind and a willingness to analyze decisions that are made and why they're made, um, it gives us insights and it gives us the ability to be productively creative, uh, sorry, productively critical and to look at creative solutions. Well, from my point of view, that's what politics should be. It shouldn't be about what party you sit for, but rather what is the problem? What is the creative solution to solve it? How can we work cooperatively to resolve an issue? And so that's my interest in politics. Not necessarily a party or a philosophy, but in how we um, analyze a societal issue so that we can come to a cooperative solution. Sadly, that's not what government does now. Sadly, it's not what politics is about now. But that's how I got interested in politics. Mm -hmm. Did your school, uh, high school, middle school, offer any special courses that you took uh, that were of your interest? Like, you, you have the main courses like math, science, um, PE, whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, were there any other special courses that were like electives that you took in high yeah. school? Yeah, yeah, good question. I, I actually uh, quite enjoyed law, right, mm -hmm. which I took in high school, which is one of the reasons why I was interested in uh, going into law. Really, the law course was more about political science. Uh, oh, and, and how how uh, our our parliamentary system works. What well, if I reflect back? That's really more of what that course was. But to be blunt with you, the the most um, beneficial course courses I ever took were the psychology courses, which weren't in high school; they were in university. I, I Matthew, I have to tell you, I high school wasn't a big deal to me. I quite enjoyed elementary school. High school was not a big deal to me. Remember, I was all the way through high school, I was working every weekend as a musician. Mm -hmm. and there was nothing I was really learning at high school that I could reflect on and go, oh yeah, that made a difference. I had some teachers in high school that made a difference, but I can't say any course did. And I can't honestly tell you that any course inspired me. But when I got to university, that's when I really hit my stride and that's when I recognized because I could specialize man this psychology stuff and an understanding of how we think and how how the how the brain works and how how we can affect behavior and how behavior is affected or impacted by the way that we do things the way that we're motivated the way that we're influenced that was of great interest to me and you know um, to be blunt with you, uh, I think that's when I really sort of recognized the value of education was when I was at university. I see. But to get there, I had to get through high right. school. Right. <laughs>
what do you think, what courses do you think should be added as mandatory courses? A few of my uh, people that I've spoke to on my podcast said finance, a financial course would be an excellent course uh, to be added to be mandatory, not just as an elective, a psychology course, and so on. What, what do you think? Well, I, I'm a huge proponent of psychology and, and of understanding um, uh, psychology, but I, I'm going to answer your, course, uh, your question in a way that you're not expecting. I'm not sure that we need to teach any course as such, as much as I value psychology. What we're not doing, Matthew, and we should be doing, is teaching critical thinking without bias. We should be teaching problem solving. So I'll give you an example. It doesn't matter what subject I teach. If I teach it in a way that applies my understandings to solve a problem, then I immediately make the learner a better learner. And then the learner can mm-hmm. learn whatever they want. So I'll give you an example. I coached basketball. I would say to a group of students, here's a line. There's a line down at the end of the gym. I want you to get the ball to, from this line to that line as quickly as you can. And I lined the students up and I said, go. And you know what immediately the students started to do? Dribble. And I had one kid who figured out. He threw the ball, ran after it, and stopped with it on the next line. I stopped everybody and I said, wait a sec, who won? And they all pointed to the kid that threw the ball. And one of the kids said, but that's not allowed. And I said, why isn't it? Well, he threw the ball. I said, yeah, why is that not allowed? Nobody can answer that question. I said, what's the fastest way to get the ball from here to there? Notice what I'm doing. You know what the kid said? Throw it. I said, what would be a better option than throwing it to yourself? And the kid who threw it said, well, I would have rather somebody was down there to catch it. Look what they just figured out, Matthew. The fastest way to move the ball closer to the opposition's goal is to throw it instead of dribbling it. Now they're critical thinking. Now they're problem solving. Fastest way for me to move the ball is to pass it, not dribble it. And then that leaves me open to say, why do we dribble them? Well, the idea of dribbling is to beat my opponent so I create an imbalance with the rest of the team. By beating my player, I'm now creating a five on four. We have the advantage. We have more people. My guy's behind me. Notice, now we can problem solve again on the ride, on the fly. If I teach math the same way, so basic skills, they all know how to do percent, ratio, decimals, fractions, students all know that. Now I walk in with a group of flyers and I put the flyers in front of the kids. You know what flyers are? They're advertising sales. Right. And I say to them, find the best deal on the flyer. And I handle the flyers. And now they have to work out, well this one's got 30% off, this one's got 20% off, this one's a two for one, that's 50% off. This one's buy one, get one free, 50% off. This one says buy two, get one free. Well, it's not 50% off anymore. Now the students are having to go, well, what's my savings? Then I say to them, what are you gonna buy? And a child says, I'm buying this compressor. It's 75% off. And I looked at her and said, great deal. What are you gonna do with a compressor? (laughs) And the kid goes, what's a compressor? So was that a good way to spend your money? Notice the learning that's being done. You see, it, I, I love math. That was a math class. The kids are going, they're, they're going, math, this is math. But it's not about 
math class. It's about problem solving. It's about being critical about the way that you use the information that you gather. We don't do that. We, instead, we teach stuff. I teach the ukulele. I could tell you, put your second finger on the second string in the second fret. Or I could tell you, that's a D note. That's a D. Every time I tell you to play a D, play that note. Or I could tell you, here, on a line, this is where D is. Every time you see that, play that. Or I could say to you, the name of the open string is C. Okay? Got it. That's C. If I put my first finger on the first fret, what happens to the pitch? It goes up. Oh, is it a different note? Yeah. Well, if the first note open is C and I pinch it, what's the next note going to be called? Kids go, I don't know. Let me give you a hint. What direction did the pitch go? Up. When you sit on something sharp, what way do you go? Up. Guess what that new note's called? And the kid looks at me and goes, C sharp? Are you asking me or telling me? And the kid goes, C sharp. That's the right answer. What comes after C in the musical alphabet? D. Well, you played C, C sharp. What's the next note? D? Are you asking me or telling me? D. Good. What's the next note? D sharp. See what the kid just did? I've used that understanding to get a new answer. I now have a new understanding. The teacher didn't tell me it. I solved it with my brain. That's what we don't do. So Matthew, honestly, it's not about the subject. It's about the way you teach the subject. Wow. If I develop you to be a critical thinker, anything you learn, you'll be able to use as a problem-solving experience. And then you're gonna find your passion. What it is that you're passionate about shouldn't be what I'm passionate about. It should be you going, I get what you're passionate about, Mr. Luongo. That's great for you. Thanks for teaching me to play the ukulele. But now I can go be passionate about doing this because you've helped me to become a problem solver and a critical thinker. Wow. And then I'll just finish up here. Uh, last question. What is your favorite podcast and your favorite book that you think uh, would be beneficial for other students? Hey, listen, I, I love, um, it's an old publication now. It's called um, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen mm -hmm. Covey. Now, it's, it's old news. It's old think because it was around <laughs> 30 years ago, but it's a great read. It's a, and, and many have replicated it since. So I, I do encourage that. Now, I'm going to give you sort of who I am. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Mr. Peterson. Do you know who I'm talking about? Dr. Peterson? It, yeah. Uh, it, Jordan Peterson. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. yeah. So I do listen to Jordan Peterson. Uh, and people have labeled him as a right-wing fanatic, and I think that's nonsense. He, um, he, he will allow anybody to challenge his thinking so long as they do it with respect. And that's where part of what I've said to you here today comes at odds with the system. People don't want to argue with respect. They want to name call. They want to tell you you're wrong and I'm right. He will tell you he believes he's right, but he'll challenge you to say, challenge me. Right. By challenging each other in a respectful fashion, we both benefit. That's who Stephen... That's who Jordan Peterson is. And mm -hmm. sadly, sadly, he gets labeled and people neglect to listen. I'd rather people listen and do what he says he wants them to do. 
challenge me. Don't believe me because I say it's true. Listen to what I have to say and then challenge me. So those, the two books, Highly Effective, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and I would listen to Jordan Peterson, whether you agree with him or not is not the point. Listen to him. Challenge his thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome. Thank you very much. It was a very eye-opening conversation. Uh, thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure, and hopefully some of my listeners, I mean, I know for sure they'll at least learn one thing, but uh, thank you. <laughs>